Welcome into episode 22 of Canucks Speakeasy Podcast. I'm one half of the hosting duties, Doug. That would make me the other half, Pete. Doug, how you doing? I'm doing good, Pete. How are you? Yeah, good, man. Just uh, trying to stay warm. Yeah, it's pretty cold here in the moment. Uh, at my, the moment. My street's like an ice rink out there right now as well. It's crazy. I'm pretty sure you said you saw like a Fudora guy or oh. someone trying to ride down <laughs> the street in a bike. Yeah, man. I don't know what's going on. I'm riding down... A hill in the West End that's like two inches of ice on a bike. Uh, good luck, buddy. Someone really better tip that guy when they get their cheeseburger. That's I for hope sure. so. Uh, Doug, lots going on on the show today. We're going to have Brendan uh, joining us from the Just a Bit Outside podcast. Most people on Canucks Twitter would know him from his handle, which is Jabo underscore Vancouver. We're really excited to have him come on onto the show and talk a lot of Canucks content. Yeah, it's always good to get a fellow podcaster on the show. And uh, obviously, you know, uh, just a bit outside is a little bit more than just Canucks. They're, uh, you know, we're a lot niche, more niche than they are as far as our content for the most part. Um, so yeah, I'm excited to to get Brendan on and, you know, to talk uh, some Canucks and maybe uh, discuss uh, some uh, NFL playoffs as well. Yeah, indeed. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter. We're at Canucks Speak, and myself is at Pete underscore Gas. And I'm at Doug Venn. And then also, uh, you know, we say this every week, but uh, give our Spotify playlist a follow. Uh, we're Canucks Speakeasy on Spotify. And then we've built an outro playlist of all the outro tracks we use uh, to end our episodes. And uh, yeah, give us a follow on there and check out some of the cool uh, music we've got uh, constantly uploading. So, Doug, it was a eventful week, to say the least. Canucks four games since we last recorded we were in the state of Florida and then we left the state of Florida uh the world felt like it was imploding on Canucks nation and then they bounced back really well uh two kind of must win games in a lot of ways afternoon games as well what do you think of the last week where where are you at with this team right now uh yeah I mean it was very Jekyll and Hyde you had going into the Tampa Bay game obviously Tampa they're a Stanley Cup contender, and the Canucks aren't. You know, I, I'm pretty sure all Canucks fans, we're just hoping, maybe some of us aren't, but most of us, I think, are hoping that the Canucks just make the playoffs. Tampa is a team that is in win-now mode, and you knew they were the two hottest teams going into that game. Tampa was on a seven-game win streak. The Canucks were on a seven-game win streak. And, yeah, clearly the Canucks didn't uh, bring their bags off the airplane because... They literally, you know, got left on the tarmac in that game. Uh, it was it was a great game uh, as far as seeing the discrepancy between the Canucks and one of the like major elite teams. You kind of need that kick in the ass from time to time. I think. I think it does overall. Trying to be positive, this is a learning experience for the team. That's for sure. I will say with the Tampa game, and I don't want to spend too much time on the Tampa game because I think we've all dissected it and hopefully moved on a bit. But the first half of that game, we were in it. We had a lead in that game. The power play looked excellent. I don't know if you remember that, but they had a really, really exciting power play. And the wheels just fell off the bus in the last bit of the second period. And, you know, the rest is history. But that game, the Florida game, we got off to a bit of a slow start again there as well. Uh, Bad defensive plays by Hughes and Petey. Denko lets in another couple early ones. Maybe not his fault entirely. But I think the bounce back going into Buffalo, going into Minnesota was really good to see. And maybe those losses kind of jogged the team and 
made them realize what they need to do to get next level. Yeah, I mean, I think the Canucks, look, goalies are always going to be streaky from time to time. And you're going to have games where, for whatever reason, the puck just seems to have eyes that game. And the puck always seems to find its way in the back of the net. So, yeah, I mean, you're going to have those weird games where every shot on goal just seems to get past your goaltender. That was the game in Tampa for Markstrom. I know Demko came in in relief and he didn't fare too much better. And then the Florida game, same thing, you know, it was just one of those games where every shot that was directed towards a Canucks goaltender seemed to have eyes and seemed to get in. I will say this on a side note, is Jonathan Huberto the best superstar that nobody realizes is a superstar in the league? I think Shorty was talking about that during the broadcast too, and he's essentially taken that role over from his teammate, Alexander Barkov. At least Barkov gets some recognition with Selkie nods and whatnot. Huberto is now the all-time leading point scorer for the Florida Panthers. So congrats to him. It's kind of crazy because I think he's only just tapping into his potential. He's going to destroy that record by the time he's done. Yeah, I believe he uh, passed Ole Jokinen for, was it 503 points for all time? Yeah, not not a lot uh, considering that franchise has been around for, I guess, 27 years now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just Huberto again, just getting him because obviously I don't get to see Florida games unless the Canucks are playing and Huberto just looked great that game. Um, but moving on to, you know, more positive games. Uh, what were your thoughts of the next two games in Buffalo and Minnesota? Yeah, like I said, good bounce back, good, good team efforts. It was, it was nice to see just good pushback and the team played much better, much more structured hockey better power play, better penalty kill. Just everything looked better. It looked like they settled down. The Florida game, they hadn't settled down yet. And now you look at this last stretch of games, 11 games, and there's two ways you can look at the numbers 9 and 2. We lost 9-2 to Tampa, but in the last 11 games we're 9 and 2. Yeah, like I said, every team I think has one or two games in a year where they get blown out by, you know, upwards of six goals. It's going to happen. I was a little disappointed. I thought there'd be a little bit more pushback in the Florida game. You know, it was essentially another blowout. What was the 5-2, I believe, was the final score in that game. So it was a little bit disappointing that the Canucks didn't have a little bit more pushback. But, hey, they went right back to work in Buffalo. And that was a close game, too. And then come the third period, the Canucks pulled away. And I believe they scored three goals in the third period to kind of seal the, put the final nail in the coffin for that game. And then, obviously, the Minnesota game last night, the Canucks were just the better team. Another thing that's nice to see is Canucks Nation got its way and Quinn Hughes is going to the All-Star game. Yeah, that's huge. Uh, I think, uh, I just think the experience of going to the All-Star game and being part of that and being recognized as one of the, you know, best players in the National Hockey League, especially at your age or Quinn Hughes' age, I think is is great. It's a great honor and uh, hopefully he's able to actually enjoy the moment and soak it in. And he's going to be there with, obviously, Petey and Markstrom as well. So, uh, yeah, i really, really, really glad. And good job, Canucks fans, for getting out there and voting and putting Hughes in as the last man. Uh, obviously, Pacioretty coming in, a fill-in for uh, Jacob Silverberg helped Hughes' case as well. I believe Hughes is the seventh fastest defenseman to get to 30 assists in his uh, as a rookie. Oh, wow. Well, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, I think uh, 45 games... He has 30, 30 assists, and I think he's the seventh fastest defenseman in the NHL, in the history of the NHL, to get to that many assists. And just to clarify, Hughes is not the same age as me. He's about half the age of me. Two Hughes equals one Pete. I wanted to touch base with you, Doug, quickly about this whole Kachuk and Cassian thing. So we just saw coming here today that Cassian got suspended for two games. 
What are your thoughts on that? Now, I should also preface this because we've talked a little bit. You can't stand Zach Cassian, I hate and I can't stand Matt Kachuk. So I think we're on opposite sides of this one. I hate Zach Cassian. Okay, hate is a strong word. I mean, I'm glad that the guy seems to have got his NHL career back. He obviously had some substance abuse problems. There was a... I don't think he was driving, but he was in the when he was in Montreal. There was a DUI. I think the girl he was dating at the time got pulled over, and there's a little bit of a traffic accident and stuff like that. So, I want to say and I want to preface: good for him to get his career back on track and to kind of, you know, pull the plug on the drinking and all that stuff. Great. I just can't stand Cassian. I just, I'll admit it. I was a big, big Cody Hudson fanboy, and I didn't understand that trade whatsoever it never made sense to me if you wanted to trade cody trade him in the off season don't trade him just before you're about to go to a, uh make another run in the playoffs and i just it didn't make sense like the uh, yeah i don't know i just I, I never liked cassian and then i always thought he was a bit of a disappointment when he was playing for the canucks obviously he got shipped off to montreal which was a bad trade for the canucks i will admit that you know getting i think we even gave a fifth round pick plus Cassian for uh for Brandon Prust. And yeah, that was kind of a disappointing uh move. And then yeah, I just I don't know. So I'm definitely on Team Kachuk. I understand look Kachuk's running around with reckless abandon, hitting anything and everything. Obviously some of the hits he's doing is questionable or are questionable. But you can't do what Cassian did. And to me, I think Cassian deserved at least three to four games for what he did, especially when the ref was there trying to pull him away and he was just kind of ignoring the ref and still taking shots at him. What are your thoughts? I think Kachuk should have also gotten a suspension. I think one of his hits was dirty. I thought one was okay. It was a clean hit, but I thought one of them was dirty. And I understand that self-policing in hockey has always existed. It just doesn't seem to exist as much lately. It's a bad look for the league. You got to suspend Cassian, but I would have liked to see Kachuk get one as well. Yeah, again, I you know what? Kachuk plays with that bit of an edge, just like a Tom Wilson. I know, you know, you got to be careful. Matt Cook was that guy for years, and then Cook started making those suspendable hits. Uh, Rafi Torres was another guy who had never been suspended, and then he started having these questionable hits, which he became a repeat offender. And Kachuk is a guy who has been suspended before, and if he's not careful, you know, he's going to be regarded as a repeat offender, and he's going to not get the benefit of the doubt. So, Doug, I want to introduce a new segment that we're doing on this show. Whoa. Called Chirping. Okay. So what we're going to do here is I've selected a few tweets from the Twitter sphere, mostly the Canucks Twitter sphere. I'm going to read them to you. I just want to get your thoughts on them. Okay. So we're going to do this on a weekly thing, and we're just plugging people's content from out there, just taking it over here, and just want to hear your thoughts in a non-tweetable form. So yeah. this first one comes from a couple days ago. It's from our buddy Cam Robinson. And you can find him at hockey underscore Robinson, who I'm sure most of you guys follow. Excellent work he does with the prospects. So he has a tweet here. It says, two assists for Cole Lind tonight. The 21-year-old is up to 32 points in 38 AHL games. That mark is good for a share of 13th in the league and third most for under 22 skaters. Cole Lind is definitely, his progression this year, I think, has got to be a huge, huge plus for Canucks fans. I think a lot of us were worried going into this year 
I know a lot of Canucks fans were calling for Trent Call's head in the offseason that thought that he should have been fired in Utica. Uh, but he seems to have kind of turned that ship around and has the young guys buying into his system now. And you're seeing Cole Lind being able to kind of produce and become hopefully that prospect that we all thought he would be when he was drafted by the Canucks. Next tweet here, Doug, it's from Van City Sports. Find them at Van City Sports WX. So not the biggest sample size, but so far Horvat is playing well with Erickson on his line at five on five. Erickson likewise with better numbers playing with Horvat. And he has a, a really good graph from natural stat trick as well to go along with that. What are your thoughts? I mean, the numbers don't lie since Louie's been playing on Horvat's line. They Horvat's been producing at a really good clip. I believe he, I think he had, he's got seven or eight points in the last 11 games, something like that. Horvat is playing really, really well. And I don't know if it's directly correlated to Louis being on that line, but it definitely seems to be, have some kind of impact. Comments Corey at Corey Hergott says, Jim Benning has been saying for a while that he'd like to add another winger for his top six. The Leafs have those. JB just saw Brogan Rafferty in Utica. Maybe he gets bumped up to Van soon if the big club moves a D to the Leafs, question mark. So I saw this tweet myself. I didn't know that this was going to be one of the tweets you were going to add to the segment. Love the segment, by the way, Pete. Uh, nice you know, this is what happens when we watch football and brainstorm. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. I think one of the big things, and you and, I, you and I have talked about this in the past, is that the Canucks are kind of in a similar position with Troy Stetcher as they were with Ben Hutton. And that's a qualifying offer this offseason is going to be too much. They're going to be priced out to qualify Troy Stetcher. That doesn't mean that the Canucks don't see that there's still value in Stetcher or that they could, you know, they don't want him to be part of this club, but they might be priced out. Now, if you want to start throwing stones at Jim Benning and say, this is why you need to be better with your money instead of just shelling money out to bottom six forwards, by all means, go ahead. Brogan Rafferty, I would like to see him spend the entire year in Utica. However, he is proving that he is probably an NHL prospect and I would like to see him get an opportunity to play with the big club this year. If a trade for Stetcher or a Tanev, who is a UFA at the end of this year, does come to fruition, I would be on board. James at Roberto James 192 says Canucks fans are rightly concerned about the future of Ole Ulevi. If it helps, Gaudet is a 23-year-old forward and he's just now finding his NHL legs. Sure, we can complain about where OJ was drafted, but the fact remains he's a 21-year-old D-man. What do you think about that? True. I mean, you can't really... Yolevi's had, the last two and a half years, Yolevi's been injury-prone, so he hasn't been able to stay healthy. He's had a tough time actually being able to kind of progress and to, you know, become that top four defenseman that he was drafted for. If he can stay healthy and he can have an entire season... A healthy season in Utica, I think next year, depending on how things break for the Canucks' defensive core, he should be a guy knocking on the door for a spot on this team. James also had hashtag still hopeful at the end of that. That's the end of our chirping segment, the inaugural one. And James, I'm still hopeful as well. Yeah, me me too. I, I, I completely agree, and I think there's roster spots for guys like Ulevi and Rafferty next year. Moving back to 
current situations in topics with the Vancouver Canucks. One thing I wanted to bring up, and Jay Beagle has been a bit of a lightning rod as well. Maybe he's overpaid. Maybe his term is too high. Maybe that fourth line doesn't score ever. But Jay Beagle and JT Miller are number two and number three in the NHL right now in faceoff percentage. Number one is Claude Giroux at 60.6. Right behind him is JT Miller at 60.5. And right behind him is Jay Beagle at 59.6. What do you think that does to the value of Jay Beagle? I mean, we already know JT Miller is what he's done. But does that change your opinion on Jay Beagle at all? I guess slightly it does, right? Beagle is generally used on the PK, and obviously sometimes he, t- he matches up against the top line of the other team from time to time. He also is used to take faceoffs in his own end. You know, these are the little things that Beagle does that people don't realize, and I think that's why Beagle, that's why Beagle was signed. He was signed to be a guy that would be good on the faceoffs, good on the PK. He's not a guy that you're expecting to score 15 goals a year. If he could score 10, 12 goals a year, I'm sure all Canucks fans would be happy. That's not really who he is. That's not what he's being asked to do. And this team is one of the top goal-scoring teams in the league. So they don't really need Jay Beagle to score you 15 goals. Yeah, Beagle was never brought in for that. I completely agree. Uh, also worth noting on there, Bo Horvat is 13th and Sean Couturier is 4th. So the Canucks and the Flyers have the top two face-off men in, in the league there. Interesting. You mentioned Louis Erickson. A lot has been made this past week and a half or so about Erickson's play with Horvat and Pearson. I've even seen articles saying, is Louis Erickson the winger that Bo Horvat's been looking for? I wouldn't go that far myself. But what are your thoughts with that second line, Louis Erickson on the wing there? You mentioned it in the chirping segment there, uh, one of the uh, chirps that uh, got brought up. uh, I forget who it was. Van City Sports. Van City Sports brought up the the impact that Louis seems to be having on that second line and for Horvat's numbers. And yeah, like I said, it seems to, the correlation is there. There is definitely a correlation that Horvat does seem to be on a bit of a hot streak since Louis joined him on that line. Uh, oddly enough, I feel like Tanner Pearson's slowed down a little bit. His production the last few games isn't as uh, noticeable as it was prior to that. But Louis, if Louis wasn't making $6 million a year, I don't know if we would be as hard on him. Obviously, it's it, it clearly comes down to his price tag, right? If he wasn't $6 million man, as some people in this market love to call him, I don't know if... I, I, I do think Louis would be a contributing member to this team. Tanner Pearson is a point-a-game player over his last four games, so he does have four helpers over the last four games. Louis Erickson has two goals and a helper over his last five Bo Horvat leads the team over the last five games. He's got seven points. He's the only one over a five-game stretch who is actually over a point a game. He's been playing lights out, I think. Well, even the, I think I, I tweeted something out on the Minnesota game that just the intensity that Horvat was playing that game, you know, when he scored the go-ahead goal to make it 2-1 right after Minnesota had just tied the game up, he was getting involved in scrums, and you usually don't see that with Horvat, you know what I mean, where he's kind of getting in scrums, face-washing the opponent. It was nice to see. He seemed like he was, you know, really trying to wheel the team to a win there because he knew how important that game was and those two points were. We really kind of separated ourselves from Minnesota. I believe we were already six points up on Minnesota going into that game and obviously getting a regulation win. We're now eight points up, with, and I believe we still have two games in hand. Another guy who I think has been 
playing extremely well and not getting enough credit for it is Brock Besser. He is all of a sudden up to 43 points in 46 games. He's third on the team in scoring. And him and Bo producing more has really helped this team out over this stretch as well. And seeing these guys is not just the PD Miller and Hughes show that we were kind of talking about a lot. I don't think we're giving Brock and Bo enough credit for how well they are playing right now. Yeah, especially Brock. I think he's I think he's been told by the coaching staff to shoot more and you're seeing him actually try to get a shot off a lot more than he was. I know there was I think it was heading into the Buffalo game, they actually had Brock skating with the third or the second line or third line and he was on the second unit power play. I will say this, I wouldn't mind having Besser on the second unit power play. Uh, part of the reason of that is when you look at the power play, I feel like it's so stagnant. The Canucks, uh, quite often, their players are just standing there. Even yesterday's game, there was a five on three. The Canucks had a five on three. And it all of the guys were pretty much just standing still. And that's because you got PD on one side who's waiting for it to unload his shot. Besser on the other side who's waiting to unload his shot. Miller's kind of in front of the net, you know, trying to cause a screen. And then you got Horvat being the bumper and Hughes walking that line. I would like to see them move someone else around to get more, to, to, to see that first unit power play be more fluid, moving the puck around and moving around in general. When you got two guys on either wing who are just waiting to get the one-timer shot, you get a very stagnant power play. So I think it would be nice to see Besser bump down to the second unit power play, maybe balance out the scoring more, even though the second unit has been fairly productive. It's worth noting that Brock Besser has the same amount of goals as JT Miller, and he has the same amount of assists as Pedersen. So I think people need to keep that in context as well. There was a lot of people like, oh, what's wrong with Besser? He's just playing a very different game this year, but I do agree with what you're saying about the power play. There's a little bit too much of this pass it, not shoot it mentality, and I want to I want to see maybe them spread that around. Maybe adding a guy like Gaudet or Vertanen in instead on that first unit would just change it up a bit. Well, that's the one thing I, I'm sure everyone can agree on watching that Tampa Bay game and their power play running. They were just moving the puck all over the ice. And, you know, they no one was standing still for the most part. Everyone was moving in. Kucherov was kind of set up in his kind of shop there to blast the puck. But even Kucherov, you, you know, he was skating around and, yeah, I just noticed it. I think uh, John Garrett made a comment last night that just there was a couple of times, that five on three especially, they were nothing, man. They were just standing still. It would be nice to see them change up that unit a bit. That's for sure. I wanted to talk a little bit. Oh, one other thing with Bo is, or sorry, with Brock, uh, is he scored his first multiple multi-goal game against Buffalo since October 30th. So I just thought that was worth mentioning as well. Thatcher Demko doesn't see any action in the back-to-backs. Uh, he plays a little bit in the Florida game, but he doesn't get to do the back-to-back over the weekend. What do you think about that? Yeah, I was a little disappointed. I think I would have liked to see Demko get the nod, but the results are the results. We got the win. We got the two points. We didn't. We won the game in regulation. We didn't give Minnesota a point. So you can't really argue with Green's decision to play Markstrom back-to-back. But I do think we are starting to see the coaching staff and I believe management lean towards Markstrom as their number one. And I know there's been more and more discussion about Demko potentially getting moved 
maybe even prior to the expansion draft. It's going to be interesting how this all shakes out because I know, and we I brought this up before, but I know Demko and his camp, they're not afraid to kind of push the Canucks to get more ice time, to be called up. They're not happy, if, you know, probably with how things are trending at the moment. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if we see Demko maybe moved in the offseason. I think as well, we all in Vancouver assume, and I've done a quite a bit of digging into this, we just assume that if Thatcher Demko is going to get exposed in this expansion draft. I think right now with this team, you have to re-sign Jacob Markstrom. I think the way Markstrom is playing right now, he is your goalie of the future. Maybe you can get him at a five-year deal or something, maybe five and a half. But that would probably chase Demko out of town. And you'd almost certainly, by signing Markstrom, need to give him the no-trade, no-movement clause, which makes him protectable against Seattle. Now, just because the Canucks expose Demko, they're in a position where they'll likely then, if he's still on the team, they'll have to expose him, of course. But there's a lot of other good goalies out there. And I've seen a few people mock drafts throughout the year, and Thatcher Demko is not on a lot of people's Seattle teams. There are some very good goalies that could be available out there, including guys like Alexander Georgiev and the Rangers, Mackenzie Blackwood, UC Saros, Matt Murray, Jake Allen, Antti Ranta, Aaron Dell, James Reimer, and Jonathan Quick are all just a few examples. And there's even a chance, depending on what happens with Braden Holtby, that he could also be uh, exposed to Seattle. So I don't think that it's a given. Another guy as well, sorry, there's um, I forgot about as well, it was a late ad, is Colin Delia in the Chicago system. He's another guy who would, very nice contract, 25-year-old goalie, who would be a nice one to slide in for Seattle. So... Just because the Canucks exposed Thatcher Demko doesn't mean he's going to get taken. I think not enough people are talking about the fact that Cole Lynn needs to be protected, and he could be a guy that they lose in the expansion draft too. So I don't know exactly right now where you fit Cole Lynn in with the other seven forwards that you got, because obviously it's Petey, Brock, Miller, Horvat, Gaudette, Vertanen. Pearson? And maybe Pearson. I mean, maybe you have to expose Pearson, though, and uh, you protect Lind. I think you're probably more likely to protect Lind, especially if he comes up to the team next year. But I just want people to kind of comment with this whole goalie thing right now is Demko is an asset, and I wouldn't be surprised, like you said, if he does get shipped out in the offseason because the Canucks need to just address the Markstrom thing. They need to re-sign Markstrom, in my opinion. By doing that... I don't see Thatcher Demko then wanting to be a backup in Vancouver for five years. No, and I also think if they're proactive with this situation, I think there is a chance that by maybe trading Demko, which I'm actually a big Demko fan, and I do like Demko, and I think overall when he's played, he's played very well. But you can't deny how great Markstrom is playing and how loyal Green and the management seems to be to him. That if you do, if the Canucks do decide to maybe move Demko in the offseason, that's also a show of, you know, uh, a show of confidence to Markstrom and saying, hey, look, we've cleared the way for you. There's no discussion for the next five, six years, whatever they end up signing him to. You're our goalie. You're going to be the goalie. Demko is moved on. And then, you know, who knows? Maybe that sweetens a, a re-signing and Markstrom signs for a bit better of a deal than you know, he normally would because of that, right? So I will say this with Thatcher Demko is out of those goalies that I mentioned, not counting Delia because he's been playing in the A all season, out of those 10 goalies, Thatcher Demko has the ninth best 
goals against average and the seventh best save percentage. So he has a 3.2 goals against, which isn't amazing by today's NHL standards. A 903 save percentage, which is fine, but his numbers aren't jumping out at you right now. So it's something to consider as well. I, I Right now, I'm not sure what the end game is with Thatcher Demko. He's with the team this year. That's great. But I do think the Canucks are going to make signing marks from a priority. How many games played is that for those goalies? Like, is it Demko played roughly the same amount of games? No, he's played the second fewest. Okay. Out of all of them. Jake Allen has 13. Thatcher Demko is 15. And everyone else, uh, Reimer has 18. Three of them were shutouts, funnily enough. And everyone else has 20-plus games. Okay. Okay. So they're all roughly the same boat. But I'm a team looking. It's depending on what happens. I mean, a guy like Jonathan Quick might be your your starter. And then you think, okay, if, well, if you have a starter, maybe build a, a more seasoned backup behind him and uh, and a younger goalie that you can put down on the farm. And that's, I think, where Delia uh, in particular could be really attractive. Yeah, I mean, the goalie situation is going to be interesting. I think there's a few teams that have young, up-and-coming goalies that they probably don't want to lose in the expansion draft. So they're going to be hard-pressed to make a tough decision. You brought up Braden Holtby, which is another great discussion to be having because what do the Capitals do? Samsonov seems to be one of the best young goalies in the league, and his numbers this year are showing he's one of the best young goalies in the league. But Holtby, you know, he's arguably been, you know, behind Ovechkin and probably Backstrom and let's say John Carlson, he's the face of the franchise, right? Like he has been, and he, he's a homegrown kid. You know, he, as, as far as like he was drafted by the Capitals, developed by the Capitals, won a Stanley cup with the Capitals, but you got to make those tough decisions. And I wonder right now if Pittsburgh thinks that they made the wrong decision by exposing Flurry and keeping Matt Murray. Cause Murray's really been struggling and who knows what's going to happen. And again, he could be gone too. So I just, my, my message right now is just because we expose Demko, it doesn't mean he's going to get taken. I don't want to lose Demko, but we have to look realistically at our goaltending situation right now. And I don't see how you cannot say that Jacob Markstrom has, well, I, I, I guess you could argue it, but I think he's been the MVP for this team this year. Mm-hmm. I think he's earned a new contract. And by doing so, you then have to address, well, do we keep Demko for another year? And does he get exposed or do we try and move the guy? The other thing that is worrisome about Demko for me, I believe he's had three concussions or two concussions in the last two years or three concussions in the last two years. To me, that is a concern, Uh, especially with goaltending. It's just, it's one of those things where that's got to be a risk that a team's definitely got to look into. We're looking at what's happening with Furlan now, the concussion problems with Berchi in the past. So yeah, that, that is something else to look at for the future. And Doug, one more thing, just before we get Brendan on the line here, new assistant GM in Vancouver this week. Yeah, that was kind of interesting, actually. Uh, I'm, I don't know much about the guy, uh, Chris Gear. I guess he's worked as legal counsel for the Canucks since 2010-2011, and uh, he's been promoted to the assistant GM. So I guess there's two assistant GMs now for the Canucks, uh, John Weisbrod and Chris Gear. I know Benning said in his media release about the hiring as well that this should definitely give Benning and Wisebrod more time to be able to scout, you know, which is great. I don't know if that's pro scouting, if that's junior scouting, but uh, yeah, I mean, I do think we're, we live in an era now where front offices 
are bigger and bigger. Yeah, what are your thoughts? Uh, I I think if they get more chance to scout, hey, that's a good thing. Uh, that's Benning's strong point. I think most sides of the Canucks Twitter divide can agree on that. Yeah, his amateur scouting has been good. I, his pro scouting has been a little bit suspect for the most part. But again, I think, and you see this all the time with GMs, is you get situations where a pick is made and they're a bust and it's all Jim Benning's fault, a la Ole Ulevi or Jake Vertanen. Or if a pick is made and it's an absolute home run like a Brock Besser or a Petey, it's all Judd Brackett. It's like, well, no, organizations make decisions as a collective. They don't, there's not one guy who's up there deciding that this is the pick we're going to do. And I've heard a lot of people like J.D. Burke say, generally GMs have say mostly on the first round pick. And then after that, they kind of rely on their scouting staff to kind of guide them through who they should be picking in the later rounds. Three final thoughts here before we get Brendan on the line. Third straight year, the Canucks have sent a rookie to the All-Star game. I think that's uh, that's pretty impressive right there. The Year of the Rat logo that the Canucks have is awesome. If you haven't <laughs> seen that, I've already got the shirt on the way. Can't wait to see it. There's some mock-ups of those jerseys. They are lit. I love it. And Alex Ovechkin just passed Kima Solani on the all-time goal list. That is pretty cool. Two guys that uh, I've I've watched tons of hockey with, two of the best players ever. Uh, so congrats to Ovi and another milestone. And I still wonder if he's going to catch Gretzky. I was just going to ask you, do you think he does it? Yeah, I think he does. I do too. All right, let's uh, get Brendan here. Joining us now, our guest for this week, we have Brendan Kabluk from the Just A Bit Outside podcast. You can also follow him on Twitter at Jabo underscore Vancouver. Brendan, thanks for joining us, and how are you doing? I'm good, guys. I'm much better now that I've seen that Calgary's lost to Montreal, which, you know, I mean, we're all Canuck fans here, so that that should make us all happy. Yes, thanks to the Habs and their fans for that one. We appreciate that. Uh, the Canucks itself, though, they... I guess we could still say they're on a bit of a roll. It's been a roller coaster of a week, but nine wins over their last 11. What have you noticed since the episodes in Florida? Uh, you know, I went back and I watched the, the two games in Florida, and, and you know, yes, I mean, I'll, I'll say, I mean, Tampa at this point is obviously a better team than Vancouver. I mean, Vancouver is kind of, you know, really at the infancy of what they will become, hopefully, in two to three years. But I still watched both of those games, and, and, and I really thought there were mistakes. A lot of what they did was self-inflicted. And so you could take, I mean, obviously that's not good, but you can take some solace in the fact that you can fix those mistakes and you can become better. So, I mean, my hope, and this, this goes back, you know, before this, is that I was really hoping that they would tighten things up. I think at times they have a tendency to go, uh, a little too balls to the wall offensively. They tend to pinch a little too often on 50-50s at the point that I, that I think at times it's better to just, you know, back off. Um, I think their rotation was poor. I think, I think their forwards, especially in that game in Tampa, the young forwards were not backing up their defense. And so, you know, they got to Buffalo, and I was, I was like, you know, cautiously optimistic that they had understood, okay, you know what? We need to be better defensively. Jim Benning has said it, that they need to be better defensively, and much better in both games in Buffalo and in Minnesota. I mean, the shots against 
say enough about that. 86 shots over the two games in Florida as opposed to 52 uh, over the two games in Buffalo and Minnesota. So um, obviously they decided, okay, you know what, we need to back off a little bit. I think they have the offensive talent to be able to score when they're playing a little more defensive. I don't think they need to go all out uh, pitching in, having defensemen jump into the rush all of the time in order to score. There's enough talent there that they can score. And obviously, I mean, it was shown 10 goals over those two games as well. Yeah, I I think it's actually interesting that you bring up, Brendan, the fact that the Canucks do Travis Green wants to play more of a offensive style of hockey, but it was brought up, uh, I believe, on one of the radio stations this week about Elaine Vigneault's first year as coach for the Canucks and how he kind of brought them back and made them play more of a defensive style for the first year and a half before kind of opening up the floodgates and getting that team to kind of become the offensive juggernaut they ended up becoming heading into the 2010-2011 season. I wonder if it would give Green and the coaching staff a bit more leeway with these players to maybe focus on being more of a defensive-minded team for a year, and then kind of the offense will come. Because like you said, this team definitely has the offensive firepower. You know, it's funny. I, I actually tweeted that out um, four or five days ago that, that, that that's what I had, that that's that, that, you know, that 2006-2007 team, um, you know, they had some good parts, obviously, and, and that ended up showing in the next three or three and four years, but, I mean, they were hardly a polished team. Um, really, I mean, that was the first year that you really saw Henrik and Daniel take over that team, and, I mean, they, at that point, they really weren't that good of a team. A lot of young players, a lot of learning left to do, um, and it was as frustrating at times as it was to watch as a fan, because, you know, no one wants to see their team trap and, and play that defensive style it really was important i mean you saw it later on i mean by the time we got to 2011 they led in both goals for and goals against in the 2010-2011 season and i think you need that basis there i think every young player needs to understand that defensive side of the game um and and vino what I always thought was brilliant, maybe not so much at the time, but as I look back on it, you know, there were stretches of maybe four to five to six to seven games where the Canucks would lose that defensive structure. And after a while, Lane Vigneault would stop and be, okay, you know what, we're going to sit back here. I don't care what you guys want to do. No pinching, no jumping into the rush. We are focusing on getting this defensive structure back into play. And you know what? It took a couple of games. They might lose a game or two after that, but then once they got that defensive structure back in place, then he would let them go, play more offensive, play that up-tempo style that they were really, really known for. So getting that instilled in those guys at that point in time, guys like Ryan Kessler, who obviously became arguably the best two-way center the Canucks have ever had, Alex Burroughs, Mason Raymond, the Sedins, um, you know, that defensive, that defensive team was actually quite good at that time. They still had Matisse Holman, but, you know, you did Sammy Sallow and Kevin Bieck. But it really was important to instill in them at that young age because the fact of the matter is, is run-and-gun offense doesn't usually win in the playoffs, with maybe the exception of the Chicago Blackhawks in 2009-2010. It's really hard to play that style 
and win when the playoffs start, when things start shutting down, when teams are looking for you to make mistakes. You really need to be patient. And it was, you know, it's not a finished product, but you saw in Buffalo um, and Minnesota a team that was playing more patient. And, And I think that's important, not just this year. I think people, I think at times, are really set on, oh, what's going to happen this year? For me, that's the bigger picture. What's going to happen two, three, and four years from now? And you build those building blocks now so in the future they don't have to learn it. It's already instilled, much like it was for that, for that AV team in 2006 and 2007. I don't think there's much argument that Ryan Kessler was the best two-way center we've ever had. Yeah. I mean, when he to was... To be honest, he, I was trying to think of somebody else, and <laughs> no, I couldn't I, think of anybody else. I, I don't think it's close. I, I mean, a Selkie Trophy winner, It's uh, there's, there's no one else in the Canucks who've even come close to that. And you mentioned the Sedins as well during that time. From 2006 to about 2009, they grew incredibly as players, and they became strong on the boards. They became strong on the forecheck. They were playing two-way hockey and it's easy to look back in hindsight because that stretch of years was over a decade ago but is is there an element of preaching that patience with this Canucks young core as well over this three four year period as the window begins to open for this team and continuing to watch guys like Petey and Hughes and Brock grow into the defensive two-way game as well I mean absolutely I I mean there there have been a lot of things that that, that you can tell that Travis Green is trying to instill in these players, not even just on the defensive end, but even on the offensive end, that, you know, I, the flash and dash is all great. Being flashy, you know, making those slick moves, that's great. But come playoff time, when the ice closes up, the neutral zone closes, you're not going to be able to make those moves. You're not going to be able to do that and get away with it. So you've got to learn how to play a really, really north-south style. Go to the net. There was a, there was a stat that came out today for... Uh, Bo Horvat and what he's done uh, over the first half. And, you know, the points weren't necessarily there, but he was going to the net, which um, I, I think anybody who watched the playoffs last year and watched what St. Louis did, there really is an emphasis on going to those dirty areas to score those goals because teams like St. Louis, like Dallas, like Arizona, they're not going to allow you to play an open style. You're not going to get a lot off the rush. You're going to have to be able to dump that puck in and grind things out. It's that important. So you've been seeing that. And, you know, I've heard fans say, oh, you know, you're stifling Petey and he's not going to like this. Well, you know what? Petey's going to like it because if this gets him to be a better player two, three, four years from now when he's in the middle of his prime and hopefully for this franchise, for this city, we're winning cups. You know what? He's gonna look, you're going to look back on this and say, you know what, these were formative moments, both on the offensive and the defensive end. You're not going to be able to do the things that he got away with in his first year. You're not going to be able, maybe once in a while, you might be able to dipsy-doodle your way around a guy, but it's rare. So you've got to be able to get to those dirty areas, and that's going to the net, um, doing things that you may not want to do, but it has to happen. It has to, you have to do it if you're going to be a good playoff team. I just, I just got to ask you, and i put you a bit on the spot here, but with regards to Travis Green, is he the coach that can get us to that next level and get us to the cup, do you think? Well, uh, that's tough. I mean, it, it, it's hard to say right now, I, I mean, what's going to happen in, in two to three years. 
Um, I, you know, I've been, you know, at times a little critical of the structure that they're playing with. I feel like that, that maybe that, that this run-and-gun style at this point in, point in time in the evolution of this team probably isn't where they should be going. I mean, we've seen it in Toronto. Toronto wants to play that style. The Leafs probably, arguably, may have a better skilled roster than the Canucks. But they're also finding that you need to be a team. You can't just play that style and expect to win. I mean, they got throttled yesterday in Florida 8-4. Um, and and, it, was, and a lot, it, was, it was interesting to watch because a lot of the problems that they had were the problems the Canucks had. Too much pinching, turning the puck over, poor rotation at the top, and giving up odd man rushes. And so um, is he the coach going forward? You know, I mean, that's really tough to say. I do like what I've seen uh, over these last couple of games, but it's going to have to be continued because the Canucks have a, have a tough schedule when they come back. I mean, going and playing Arizona in the first game back after a long road trip, that's not going to be easy. And it's a team that the Canucks at the moment are chasing, and they have four games left against them. Arizona plays a very tight defensive structure, and the way you have to play that those teams is you can't, be forcing it. You can't. You have to be patient because they're waiting for you. They're waiting for you to make a mistake, and they're going to pounce on those mistakes, and they're going to get those transition, uh, those two-on-ones, those three-on-twos, and that's where that's where they make their hay. And so the Canucks cannot allow that to happen. They've got to be patient. They've got to be good in their structure, and they've got to be good defensively. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Brendan. I think one thing that is a sign of a really good coach is being able to adapt. Sure, you want to play a high octane, fun to watch offensive game, but you know, you need to be able to teach your players how to play the game the right way and the offense will come. And the firepower that this young Canucks team seems to have at the moment is definitely a team that if they can get their defensive structure down, they will be able to score goals. Even now, people are complaining about guys like Jay Beagle not putting the puck in the net, but they don't really need a guy like Jay Beagle to put the puck in the net. When you got guys like Miller, Petey, Brock, Pearson, Horvat all scoring for the Canucks. So it is going to be interesting to see if Green will adapt and maybe change some of his coaching styles to make this a more defensive-minded team when those games come. Because like you said, Arizona is going to be a tough defensive game. You're not going to put up five goals against Arizona. No, you're not. Yeah, you're, you're, you're not going to. Uh, and, and last year, I mean, you can argue that, that, that those four games against Arizona were, were what cost the Canucks an opportunity to be at least closer to a playoff spot. I mean, I believe they were 0-2-2 against Arizona last year. Uh, they've got four games left, and so they have to prove, because the Canucks have struggled against teams that play with that structure. Dallas comes to mind. Dallas is probably the perfect example of that. Um, I mean, I think I'll cut the Canucks some slack, because that was kind of in the, in the early part of the season. They're, they're learning how to play this way. I know people don't like to see the Canucks dump the puck in. They want to see the Canucks play with speed. But you know what? Sometimes you have to realize that it's not necessarily the Canucks that want to play that way. This is the other team clogging, clogging the neutral zone, really getting in their face in the neutral zone, really pinning them in at their own blue line and forcing them to do that. And so you need to be able to get that puck in deep, try not to cycle for too long, get the puck to the net quickly, and score. I mean, it doesn't matter. If it goes in off your shin pads, who cares? Score those ugly garbage goals because come playoff time, 
you know, those five to ten garbage goals that you score in a playoff run could be the difference between, you know, getting out of the first round and maybe getting to a Stanley Cup final. So you got to learn to play that way because these teams are not going to allow you to play, to, to play free-flowing hockey. It's just not the way it works. It's not the way it works come playoff time. We've seen teams. You see Toronto. Toronto struggles has struggled in the playoffs, haven't gotten out of the first round. And you know what? With the way their team is built, um, I don't even know if they're going to make the playoffs. When I look at the Canucks, at least, I see what they're trying to build. They have a top nine there. Do people love Jay Beagle? Uh, you know, maybe not, but you know what his role is. His role is that fourth-line checker. You know what, you, what Maude is, fourth-line checker. Um, and that's important. You know, you, building a team is, is, is as important as having four lines of skills. Having four of the best skilled or four lines of skilled players doesn't guarantee you anything. You need to have a good, well-structured team. And, and you know what? I do like what the Canucks have. Currently, we have four points separating second and ninth in the Western Conference. The yeah, Canucks absolutely ne- nuts. Fucking nuts, eh? it's, Isn't it, eh? And the Canucks' next two games is against teams in that bottleneck with them. They have another game uh, against San Jose, who's been underachievers all season long to close out this stretch before their break. And then their two games back after the break is also against Western Conference teams. So how important is this stretch of five games for the Canucks to keep themselves above that watermark going into the trade deadline? Well, when you look at, at what the Canucks have, have looming here, you know, you've got games with, against division opponents. I mean, you've got a big game even tomorrow against a non-division opponent, but a, but a wild-card rival in Winnipeg. You know, I mean, and this is, this is a big game. I mean, Winnipeg's not far behind Vancouver, and Vancouver has, has historically been bad in Winnipeg. Um, since they've come back, I mean, the Canucks have struggled. Um, and, I, I mean, I, for one, am kind of a little bit fed up of this, with this, oh, you know what, the Canucks just don't do well, and, I mean, the Canucks don't do well against New Jersey. Well, I mean, if you want to be a good team, you have to be able to overcome that and rise above that. Um, and so I think tomorrow, night, tomorrow night's game is, is a big one, not just from a standings point of view, but for their psyche. I mean, they need to go out and beat this team because right now Winnipeg is really struggling. Um, their defense all season has been really a ramshackled, put-together lot. If you look at that, if you look at it on paper, they're not very good. And good on Paul Maurice because he's really instilled a structure there that's hidden some of those problems. But if you're the Canucks, you've got to go there. Again, you have to be patient because Winnipeg's not going to give you a lot. And when you do get your opportunities, you've got to be clinical. Um, and then, obviously, the big matchup. I, I mean, I've been looking all year at Arizona. And what happened last year, the Canucks going 0-2-2 against the Coyotes. Um, and really, in the end, probably cost them maybe not a playoff spot, but at the very least giving them a better shot at getting there. Um, and so four games left against Arizona, and, and really those could end up being the season. If the Canucks do what they did last year and struggle against them, uh, they probably don't make the playoffs. So as you look towards the trade deadline, I mean, this is a big couple of weeks coming up. Um, you know, you, you've got San Jose, who's, I, I don't know how, but they're still lurking. Uh, a tough game against St. Louis, because playing St. Louis especially when St. Louis is on the road, because they play such a structured game on the road. Very tough defensively. Um, I mean, these are tough games. And so 
what do you do if you're Jim Benning? If the Canucks are in the the Canucks are kind of in the in the heap of things, which I don't think even by the trade deadline, I don't I don't think they'll be out of it. I also don't think they'll be far ahead of everyone. Also, so I mean, top six four was something that he's mentioned. You got to ask yourself, what are you going to have to give up? So you give up, say, uh, Chris Tanev and a draft pick or a or a prospect for a top six forward. Um, you know, and then you got to look at it the other way. I mean, is Brogan Rafferty down in the AHL who's had a hell of a year down, first year as a pro, uh, all star for Utica, leading the league or was in defensive scoring? I mean, is he ready? I mean, is he ready to take that leap? And then conversely, I mean, if you do trade a Chris Tanev or somebody on your defense, like a choice catcher who's a free agent, an RFA this year, what does that do to your depth on defense? Is your team able to overcome a couple of injuries? Because we know in Vancouver, injuries have a tendency to happen. Or, I mean, just out in the league as a whole, injuries are an issue. So um, it's, it, it, it's tough. I mean, I, if I were the general manager at this point, I'm, I'm, sta- I'm staying put. I'm standing pat. I'm not going to do anything unless it's something ridiculous. If somebody gives me an offer that I cannot refuse. This year is not the be-all and end-all for this team. This is just the beginning, so don't, don't do anything rash just to make, a, make the playoffs this year. We all know that this is headed in the well, most of us know this is headed in the right direction, um, and so if it were me, I'd be standing pat no matter what. And Brogan Rafferty is leading the AHL still. He's 33 points in 39 games. That's pretty remarkable for a guy that, that the Canucks just found, found out of the NCAA, and, you know, you've got to give a, a, a hat tip to... Um, the scouts out there, and I'm, I'm assuming in this case it's probably Judd Brackett and his amateur scouting the NCAA, which has been pretty spectacular. I mean, the Canucks have found some good players out of the NCAA. Do you think there's a little bit more pressure on Jim ben- Benning and the management group this year to make the playoffs because of that first-round pick they gave up for J.T. Miller, which has been a great addition, by the way, but this is the only year that pick is is protected, lottery-protected. Next year, if the Canucks don't make the playoffs, it's not a lottery-protected pick. So is there more pressure on them to try to make the playoffs this year and give up that first-round pick knowing that it won't be that it's lottery-protected? Uh, you know what's interesting? I mean, because I think a lot, a lot of people consider this draft to be one of the deepest drafts we've had in a while. Um, so, I, I mean, not necessarily. Uh, you know, there are a lot of fans who said, oh, well, that four-year contract extension doesn't really mean much. But to me, it does mean something. Um, it, it means that this ownership group has is, is said, you know what, we're putting our faith in this guy. We, we believe that he's going in the right direction. I don't necessarily look at like people look at moves like, you know, bringing in a Jay Beagle or bringing in a JT Miller or signing an Antoine Roussel and 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 say, well, this is means that this team's going for a playoff spot. I don't necessarily agree that that's what the intention was. I think at some point you need to surround your prospects and your good players who are currently playing in the NHL with better caliber NHL players. Because I mean. If you don't do that, you wind up with an Edmonton, who really was just a collection of young players with no one there to guide them, no one there to help in their development. I think it's important. I mean, it was important for Bo Horvath to have the Sedins there to show him and guide him in the way, to, to, to give him advice on what it's like to handle this market, because it isn't easy handling a Canadian market, especially if you've got no one there to help you who's been there before. I mean, the Sedins had Marcus Naslin, they had Matthias Olin, 
They add Trevor Linden. I think it's important, especially in a Canadian market where you're, you're let's be honest, there's going to be a lot of armchair quarterbacking going on here. Um, you need those old guard to come in and say, you know what, it's okay. This is how it's done, and we're going to get through this. It, it, it really is important. And, and bringing in a, gay, a guy like J.T. Miller, you know, as, as much as he's done for the club as a whole, I think he's done a lot for those young players. I mean, there was a good article by Thomas Durant in The Athletic talking about that, talking to the young players about what he's meant to them as a mentor. And, and you know, I think it's really important. I remember a story um, came in, coming out of Edmonton that Andrew Ferentz uh, gave. This is like maybe two to three years ago, where he was talking about what happened to that young core, and he said, you know, there was no one there to tell them what to do. There was no older guard to say, hey, this is not how you do it. And so he was brought in to be that, but he was a fourth-line, or sorry, a third-pairing defenseman, and they didn't tend to really respect him all that much. Whereas the Canucks have brought in guys. I mean, hey, Jay Beagle may be a fourth-line center, but he has a cup to his name. J.T. Miller hasn't missed the playoffs in his entire career. That means something. And so I think, the, I think um, Jim Benning brought them in with the understanding, hey, you're not just here to play. You're here to help these guys along. And I think you can't discount that. So is it important that they make the playoffs this year? Not necessarily. I, I, I mean, I think we all would like it, and I think it would be good for their development as a team. Um, but I think the most important thing is that they get into March and April and they're playing to the very end. That, to me, is what it's important. And, if it, and hey, you know what? If it ends in a playoff spot, all the better. But, I, I mean, I don't think it's, hey, you have to make the playoffs this year or you're going to lose your job. Or you're going to, hey, you know what, you've got to give up more prospects to get more guys in here. That, to me, doesn't make any sense. I mean, you know, people saying that, that he has no plan for the future. I mean, that, that, that I hear all the time, I'm like, that just makes no sense. Because whether he makes the playoffs this year or not, if the Canucks don't have cap space to sign their players in two years, he's going to get fired anyway. So I just I don't see it. I think that there's a long-term picture here. Um, and, and and part of it is helping de- develop these young players and bringing in J.T. Miller was an important part of that. I fully agree with that, especially uh, Jay Beagle. I mean, that guy is very well respected. You see what happens when he goes back to Washington. The the reverence he gets from the fans, the players, the staff there. He he's just brings, like you said, he's got cups. That's important. And Sutter was here as well and is still here to help with this team and JT Miller, like you said, is another guy. And and even just Chris Tanev on the back end, being able to put him with Quinn Hughes, I don't think that can be overrated enough, just how important that really is. Yeah, you can't discount the importance of having uh, Chris Tanev play with Quinn Hughes or, you know, JT Miller with with Petey and and, and Brock Besser. I mean, it's that important. I mean, this idea that you leave young players on an island by themselves and don't surround them with good players and expect them to develop themselves, to me, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, it's, re- it's really hard to tell these guys, hey, you know, we're going we're gonna to lose one more year. We're not going to surround you with players to make you better because we want to get better in the draft. You know, it becomes this mindset that, okay, hey, we're just going to keep looking towards that first, that, that first round pick every single year, and it's happened with teams. I mean, you look at Buffalo right now. I mean, either you want to take a guess at how many first-rounders Buffalo has on their team right now. 
Jeez, I can think of Reinhardt, Eichel. Jeez, uh, I mean, it's got to be at least five or six. Ristolainen. So, yeah, so, I'm going to go 12. Yeah. Uh, They've got 11. Jeez. They've really? got 11. And now, now, again, not all of them drafted by by Buffalo, or they've some come from other organizations, and you know they've still got. I believe they got Casey Middlestad, who's down in the AHL right now. Mm-hmm. Another one. So, I mean, this idea that you just slap together a group of first-round draft picks and that's going to somehow make a team. I mean, to me, it makes no sense. You need to set a team with defined roles. To me, that's so important. You need to know where each guy stands, and with the Canucks, you do right now they have a they do have that top nine now i think it, it i think for future i think they would love to have sutter back to help alleviate some of the pressure off of adam Goddett. not that adam Goddett's been particularly poor um but you like having that uh that that veteran there to help out on draws and stuff like that but i mean you know who their fourth line is you know which guys are going to go out on the ice and kill penalties you know who your power play guys are you know what that hierarchy is, and I think when you're building a team, that's so important. I look at a team like Buffalo. I don't quite know where all the pieces fit. I look at a team like Toronto. I don't know who's who here. Who's your third line? Who's your fourth line checker? Who are, you, who are the guys that you're sending out to kill penalties? I mean, Mitch Marner they're sending out, which is, you know, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But again, is he a guy you want killing penalties? I mean, and not focusing on what he should be focusing on? Um, it, it's tough when I look at it, and at least when I look at the Canucks right now, I see a structure, I see a hierarchy, I see a team there. Um, I know where the pieces fit, and I think that's important. And you know, going forward, they're going, they're going to need that. I completely agree with you, Brendan. All really good stuff. We're going to have to wrap this up here, but just quickly before we let you go, who's winning the AFC and NFC games this weekend? Oh God! I've been. Uh, you know what? First, first, <laughs> the, the wild card. I wasn't so good. I think I was one and three. I was three and one this week, um, with the exception of the obvious one that no one got right, which is Baltimore blowing it. Um, actually, not even blowing it. They just didn't even show up. No, they didn't um, show up. If I if I had to look at it, I, I mean, the one for sure. San Francisco's beating Green Bay. I, I just I, I that regular season game where Green Bay went to San Francisco. I mean, it would. Green Bay looked awful. They really only have one receiver, Devontae Adams. You you cover Devontae Adams. You really you really don't have much else outside of Aaron Jones on offense. And then offensively, I mean, the, what they do so well in San Francisco, spreading them, spreading out the defense, getting the ball out quick, um, getting the ball to their to their running backs and to their great tight end George Kittle. Uh, I just don't see that being much of a game. And oh God, the other one's tough. Oh, that's the tough one because Derrick Henry has been so good, and I believe they beat Kansas City in Kansas City earlier in the year. But I'm gonna go KC because I do want to see a KC San Francisco Super Bowl. I think that would just be just ridiculous. Yeah, and just the way Pat Mahomes took over that uh, Texans game uh, yesterday, he just seems like he's a man possessed. And I'm with you, though. I would like the Texans, or pardon me, the Titans to win. They're the ultimate underdog kind of left in the playoff picture here. But uh, it should be an interesting week of football coming up for sure. I'm, I'm going to have a beer in my hand, guys. And uh, you know what? Maybe a Pink Whitney as well. A little shout-out <laughs> to the Pink Whitney. That's a 
Pink Whitney, double Pink Whitney on the rocks with soda. Fantastic. Love it. Love it. Brandon, thanks for joining us, man. We really appreciate it. And right, uh, thanks, looking guys. forward to a pretty fun week of sports here coming up. All right. Well, as per usual, it'll be interesting with the Canucks. Hopefully in a week's time, uh, we'll be talking about positive things. All right. Have a good night, guys. You All too, right, buddy. Thanks, Thank man. you. And it's time for the free pour open floor segment of the episode. And I'm just jumping into mine straight away here. And I just want to talk about how the NFL just gets it right. They just get it right. Saturday, there was an amazing video that went viral of, I'm not, I forget the guy's name, so I feel really bad, but he's a guy who works for the NFL Hall of Fame coming out and on live television telling Bill Cower, welcome to Canton. Sunday, they do it again with Jimmy Johnson, and it's the exact same thing. You know, this guy comes out, I feel like a dickhead not knowing the guy's name, but he just comes out, you know, and you can see the raw emotion on both Bill Cower and Jimmy Johnson, and even the Jimmy Johnson video was amazing because they actually showed Troy Aikman, who was calling the game in the booth, watching it, during the halftime of Jimmy Johnson, or I believe it was actually the pregame, of Jimmy Johnson being told he is now going to the Hall of Fame. The NFL, they just, they have cameras everywhere. They document their sport so well. I wish the NHL would follow that same suit. Love how the NFL does that. Good stuff. That was pretty cool. It was pretty emotional seeing uh, those guys, how they reacted. Uh, I've been on the historical kick lately, and I'm going to do it again this week because I, I, there's so much history in BC hockey that I don't think a lot of people know about. So I want to do another one, which uh, ties into my roots in Victoria. So growing up in Victoria, we had the Victoria Cougars. We played at the old Memorial Arena. The Cougars sucked after the Grant Fuhr era. They just sucked throughout the 80s. It was it was pretty painful. But you're always in the, the old barn looking up, and you see a Stanley Cup banner from 1925, and you're like, how the hell did this happen? So the Cougars did win it in the old Pacific League, and two, less than two years later, the league fell apart, and the Cougars team was essentially bought by a businessman from the Patrick family, again, the Patrick family, it was bought and moved to Detroit to help start up the new NHL. So the Victoria Cougars moved to Detroit, became the Detroit Cougars, later became the Detroit Falcons, who later became the Detroit Red Wings. So it's worth noting that two Pacific Coast teams, because Portland had this too, there's a team called the Portland Rosebuds, and their players were all sold and became the Chicago Blackhawks. So it's worth noting again some of the influence that the that BC and the West Coast has had in Victoria, I have some Red Wings fans, friends over in Victoria. If you're listening, you know who you are. But I can give some serious legitimacy to Victoria and Windsor, both kind of adopting the Detroit Red Wings as their team. That's very interesting. Didn't know that. Now you know. Thanks for tuning into episode 22, folks, and thanks to Brendan from the Just a Bit Outside podcast for joining us. You can find him on Twitter as well at Jabo underscore Vancouver. 
And this track we're playing for you guys, this is a shout out to all our friends in Australia. We got a lot of listeners down there. We got a lot of friends down there. I mean, heck, Doug's even engaged to one of them. Australia, we're thinking of you right now. Yeah, absolutely, Pete. Well said. And yeah, same thing. Thanks to Brendan for joining us from just a bit outside. And are there any other uh, news that we want to let the listeners know about next week, Pete? Next week, we are taking a break. We have a week off. The Canucks are also off. They have nine days break there. And I'm going to be in Costa Rica on a volcano somewhere. So taking a, a little bit of a breather there. Clearly getting away from the snow. Yeah, I couldn't have timed it better myself. Uh, also, you can find us at Canucks Speak. Find me at Pete underscore Gas. Uh, give me a follow at Doug Then, and obviously give our Spotify playlist a follow. Uh, this track by the Avalanches, great Australian band, like Pete said, is going to be added to the playlist right after this episode drops. And as always, thanks for listening. Hasta luego.